Welcome, um, listeners, to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast, who's in my home, we've done a lot via Zoom, so it's fun to have someone in my home to do the podcast face-to-face, is my friend J.C. Whiteman. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, Richard. Thanks for having me. Um, J.C.'s written a book um, and has some other digital assets that are, um, she's an active Latter-day Saint woman, mother of seven um, grandmother of nine. <laughs> and um, she has written a book and the title of the book I really like. It's written by, it's produced, published by Cedar Fort. Um, Aren't you tired? Embracing <laughs> the Lord's call to enter his rest. And this podcast will talk about that book, but I think the goal of the podcast, if you are an active Latter-day Saint and sort of feel at times worn out with just the demands of our religion, we're in a performance-based kind of a high-based, high-demand religion, and that's a good thing, but that can lead to feeling tired, worn out, feeling like you're quite never getting anything done. Um, That may, women may feel that a little bit more than men, but some men may feel that, but um, our joint hope is this podcast will help you just feel at peace, even if you're not at the finish line and everything you want to do. And I think um, JC has some wonderful insights to help us all feel that. So that's our hope at the end of the podcast. I hope that um, ideas have come into your mind or the people you love just to help them find more peace in their life and get permission for themselves to um, rest at times. Is that okay for an introduction? I absolutely love that. So, Amen. Um, <laughs> everything that we're going to talk about, I'll put this in the show notes. You can go to JC, J-A-C-I. Whiteman, there's no W there. It's just W-I-G-H-T-M-A-N dot <laughs> yep. um, com. And so her books will be there. Um, she has uh, some other assets that may or may not come up in this podcast or on YouTube channel and some other things that she's done. So um, that's where you can go to get refer- to get more information, anything that comes up in the podcast. So with that, I'll turn it over to you, JC. Oh, I love it. I love it. Let's dive in. This is such a privilege. I'm excited to chat a little bit. I hope you continue to chat with me as we go into you this. You got it. Um, I, this book was born out of my own personal story. It wasn't that I set out, I'm going to go write a book. I was just a mama with a lot of kids going through my own personal experience. And as I studied and kept notes and looked into things, I started really seeing some things in a new way. And so this this kind of grew over many years. But I'm. it's interesting. It was almost during the quarantine that it hit me that I, I finished the manuscript during all of that. But what, what happened was when everything shut down, and none of us were very happy about it, right? All of a sudden, though, there was a little bit of relief. There was a little bit of Oh, I can breathe a little. It wasn't that, I I mean, I missed my church family. I I loved my friends and the sociality of it, but not having all the meetings and the the responsibilities, get to the temple and get to the, to ward council and do this and do, not having all that. I, I started noticing that it was a bit of a like deep breath, like, oh, okay. I'm not really missing it yet. I'm, I'm tired. And that felt, felt good to, to take a breath. And I started hearing that from other people. Just like, sure, we want life to get back to normal, but I'm not sure I do. <laughs> this is nice to rest. And, and what struck me, Richard, was, is that how you're supposed to feel about your religious life? Like a relief that, it, that it's over or a relief that it stopped and I could get off the mouse's wheel for a minute? 
suddenly that began to concern me. Like, wait a second. Is, is this how I'm supposed to be living the church life? Because if I'm feeling relief that it's over, maybe I'm looking at this the wrong way. And so I, I began working and playing with this manuscript. And, and what I want to share today, let's, let's just dive into some thoughts on Christ's life. And maybe we'll make some comparisons with our culture and kind of how we do this religious thing. If you look at how he encountered so many different people, just looking at that part of his personality. If we study him, we can learn what he values and what mattered to him. And so you start to look at the people he encountered and how he reacted to them. So Christ encountered all kinds of different, uh, for, for the lack of a better word, quote unquote sinners, right? Uh, the outcasts, the marginalized, the rejected, those that were the woman caught in adultery or the woman at the well or Matthew. He called one of his 12 was a publican and he was despised by his culture. Like he encountered so many people like that. And never once do we see condemnation. Never once do we see him pointing his finger and saying, get your, get your life in order. You need to, you know, he could have. But then we have this other group of the Pharisees. And here we have Jesus showing all this mercy to people that had done all kinds of things that were seen as sinful. And all he did was show mercy and love and embrace them and reach out to them. He didn't condone their sin, but he, he said, you're welcome with me. You are welcome to my grace. You are welcome at my table. But then he encounters the Pharisees and they were very happy about him <laughs> because suddenly he started calling them out every chance he could get. Um, you look at just Matthew 23, for example. He just goes off verse after verse after verse. This isn't mercy. He was, he was really rebuking their lifestyle. And the question I want to ask is, I mean, if, if Christ is going to show mercy for the sinful, why couldn't he show mercy for the sinful Pharisees too? I mean, yes, we know they had some problems with their inner motives. He calls out what the issues are. But why not show mercy to them too? it doesn't really make sense. These were the churchgoers. These were the scripture readers. These were the ones in the synagogue and trying to keep the law. And yet he showed all this mercy to the outcasts. But boy, when it came to these churchgoers, he called them out over and over and over. And I think we need to, to step back because a lot of us, our lives model the churchgoers. And, but, but I think we'd say, well, he wouldn't talk to me like that. Surely he wouldn't call me out because all my efforts to keep the, keep the gospel rules, I'm working so hard to try to be a good person. But, but look at the pattern that we see in the New Testament. Mercy for the outcasts, but a rebuke for, for the Pharisees. And now, not all the Pharisees. Granted, Nicodemus, there were Pharisees that came to Jesus. It wasn't them as a whole. It was the mindset. So what I want to suggest is, and what this, this finally began to settle on me, was it was that they had turned the gospel into this performance-based thing, this checklist religion. In fact, I was just reading this as, we, as I was prepping for this this week. Um, they had created not just, you, it wasn't just about keeping the commandments. It was they had 613 extra rules to help you keep the rules. So for instance, if the law was to keep the Sabbath holy, I read this, Richard, you won't believe this. I, I read this yesterday. 
the, the Jewish scholars created 39 separate categories of what work meant so that you would know how to keep that Sabbath holy. And so then in addition to the 39 categories, there were subcategories. For instance, how many steps you can take on the Sabbath, how many letters you can write on the Sabbath. So they didn't just keep the rules. They made all these extra rules. And that's what you did to earn your salvation. That's how you gain God's favor is keep the checklist, do the rules as good as you can. And then Christ shows up on the scene and he starts offering mercy to those that didn't keep the rules. And it didn't make them very happy. They're like, wait, you're, you're breaking the system. The system is you keep the rules. And then suddenly Jesus started breaking some of their rules, right? Like healing on the Sabbath. And just, we see stories like that all over the, the New Testament. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this? And so it, in my book, I'm, I'm talking a lot about, is there a chance? Yes, we are the restored gospel, which I love with all my heart. But is there a chance we too sometimes slide into a more rule-based, performance-based daily living of the gospel than, than what Christ came to offer, which is, I'm, I'm offering my grace. You don't have to earn it through your performance. The Pharisees were livid that he was starting to bring that message. They, they thought, no, you cannot step the toe outside the box. But suddenly he was, and they didn't know what to do with that. So any thoughts? If you don't, I'll keep going because I like to <laughs> well, I've I keep going. I've written out a few thoughts, and I don't want to get ahead of your content here. But You're okay. I think a lot about the Pharisees, and I, I think about, um, consistently we communicate that the scriptures are written for our day and like them to our day. Um, and so, and I think that applies to all the standard works. So I think it's good, like you're doing, saying, why, you know, why is, you know, Christ chose to come to earth during this time? And what lessons does he want us to learn from his ministry, including his relationship with the Pharisees that apply? Yeah. To us, and so I think it's really good what you're doing is, and I think the Pharisees can cause tension because it, it causes just like you're inviting us to those that are active Latter Day Saint to look inward and say, you know, could some of this apply to me? Even yeah. though we're we have the restored doctrine, um, I also thought, and I don't want to get too sidetracked here. <laughs> one example that I. We had, when I served in my YSA assignment, we had in a training, we had in a meeting with other YSA bishops, what are we going to do about the people that sit in the foyer? Are we going to fast, pass the sacrament to them or not? And we kind of had this, and I recognized some of, you know, we were we were creating rules. Exactly. That you had to be in the chapel to receive the sacrament. We looked to the handbook, there was nothing in the handbook. And um, I, I think there were some that felt like, well, you know, this is this is the sacrament. This is a important ordinance. They need to be in the chapel. Yeah. There were there some others that said, you know, they're just if this is the best they can do, let's take the sacrament to them. Yes. And we netted out in that space. Yeah. And I thought it was the right decision, but I think it teaches a principle that we should not do the sort of things that you're inviting yeah. us not to do. It didn't change our doctrine. <laughs> no. Um, no. To bring the sacrament to those in the foyer. Nope. And if we had a podcast with foyer sitters, they probably have. I had one person <laughs> mention why she was in the foyer in a podcast, but there's probably, and so there's a principle there that I think you're sharing with us. And the last thing I wrote down, and 
then I'll get back to you is sometimes I think, you know, I have a temple recommend. I'm glad to have a temple recommend. Um, I invite people to have temple recommends, but I wonder in my life if that's given me a false sense of security that I'm at the finish mm-hmm. line with what I need to do to look inward because yeah. I've got, I've sort of hit all the checklists and I'm square with the church. I'm square with my local leaders. I've got a temple recommend. I like having a temple recommend, but I think something that, that, and I may continue to fall in this trap is give me a false sense. I'm at the finish line. Um, and they're, and they're, and, but there still may be stuff I need to do mm-hmm. to fully um, be like Jesus. So with that, I'll send it back to you. Ooh, I love that. That's that perfect. Perfect. That Can I say amen to that? You bet. <laughs> I, I, let me just build on that then. This is, this is where my studies took me as I was writing this manuscript. Um, let's build, for instance, on the, the parable of the Pharisee and the publican, because I'm going to give you several, several scriptural examples because I don't want them to come from me. I don't want this to be my opinion. I want this to be something we lift from the scriptures so that we can feel confident that it is doctrinal. The Pharisee and the publican, I, in fact, let me just, let me just read it. Um, I had the wrong page. There it is. Two men went up to the temple to pray. This is Luke 18. One a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I'm not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, and adulterers, or even as this publican. So he's saying, look at all the things I don't do. And then I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I possess. Here's all the things I do. So he is coming to God with a performance checklist and saying, look at, here's what I don't do. Here's what I do. Do you approve? He was coming for the opportunity to earn God's favor. The, pu- the publican's a little harder to relate to. It says the publican standing afar off would not lift up so much his eye as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And then it says, I tell you, this man, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. So the Lord is clear in that parable. You come to me with a list of checklist and say, but I've but I served a mission and I have a temple recommend and I did my family history and I went to the, this parable is really clear that he's saying, well, hmm, okay, but that didn't earn it. It didn't earn the Pharisee anything. He was looking for the humility from the publican. So I, I did some more searching and I thought, okay, this is kind of a hard one to wrap my brain around, but let me show you a couple of things from the Book of Mormon that almost were even more shocking for me as I as I let them settle in. So there's the story of Shiblon in Alma 38. So Alma has these three boys, and he's talking to each of them through this part of the Book of Mormon. Shiblon is the quote-unquote good kid. He's the one that's been a missionary. He uh, It says in early Alma 38, it Alma points out his steadiness, his faithfulness, his diligence in being a missionary. And and then in verse four, he takes it to another level. level. He says, I know thou wast in bonds. So he's been arrested. (laughs) And he says, I know also you were stoned for the word's sake. So this kid's, you would think if anybody had earned a gold star for his church performance, it would be Shiblon. And he said, you were stoned for the word's sake, and thou didst bear all things with patience because the Lord was with thee. So Shiblon knows Christ. He is in the mission serving. So again, if God's favor is based on our performance, you would think that this kid, he's top of the heap, right? But Alma says something to him at the end of the chapter that blew my mind. I'd never really noticed it before. Um, It's verse 14. He's closing up his counsel to Shiblon and he says, 
Do not say, O God, I thank thee that we are better than our brethren, but rather say, O Lord, forgive my unworthiness. Yea, acknowledge your unworthiness before God at all times. Think about that for a minute. Like this kid, you don't get to be a better missionary description than this, right? And yet Alma says, acknowledge your unworthiness before God at all times. To me, that's just like the Pharisee and the publican. He's saying, don't stand up and start making it about a checklist. You drop to your knees and in humility, acknowledge your need for Christ. Don't ever get caught up in that list of service and all the good you've done. You acknowledge your need for him. And man, that made me think about how often, like you said, I can get pretty complacent because I have a checklist checked off. Am I? Am I, in my mind, maybe not with my words, in my mind, am I self-satisfied because of the checklist? Or am I truly, I mean, am I acting like the publican where he is falling on his face and saying, oh, Lord, be merciful to me? A- am I offering that humility? Am I, like, like Alma just said, acknowledging my unworthiness? Let me give you one more because it plays right into this. It was in Mosiah. So we get the people of King Benjamin who are, They are gathered at the temple to hear from their king. And it says in Mosiah 1, quotes specifically in in Mosiah 1, that they are highly favored of the Lord and they're diligent in keeping the commandments. So we know what these people are like. In fact, the previous um, chapter said that they had rounded up all the false Christs and, and kicked them out. So these are good people that are keeping the commandments. But then later in just a couple of chapters, he starts to speak to them. And again, if... If God's favor is based on performance, he should be up on that tower saying, you are highly favored. You're amazing. You've done so well. You've done all this stuff. God loves you because of all your checklist, religious things. He doesn't say that. He says in Mosiah 4, listen to this. He talks about their nothingness and their worthless and fallen state. That doesn't make any sense. In fact, Mosiah 4 verse 11 Always retain in remembrance the greatness of God in your own nothingness and his goodness and long-suffering towards you, unworthy creatures, and humble yourselves even in the depths of humility. So this is where my brain was spinning, writing this manuscript. Like, I think I had spent my whole life basing it on my works, my checklist, because I had done all the things. And yet all these stories are starting to go, wait a second, (laughs) I don't, I don't know that that's what he values. Not that he doesn't appreciate our, our obedience. I want to be really clear on that. But if I'm using it to earn my salvation, instead of looking to wholly to Christ as my Redeemer and my Savior, I think I'm swinging a little bit more toward the Pharisaical mindset instead of relying 100% on the Lord's gift that he gave his life to save me from even, even in my checklist state, I still had sins. I still had things that needed to be forgiven and redeemed. And yet I think I just got so complacent. Um, let me close with one quote and then I'd love to hear your, your comments because I saw you writing over there. <laughs> this is from um, Elder Uchtdorf. And in his talk, The Gift of Grace, I have probably read more than any other talk from General Conference, although there have been so many powerful ones. But this one, listen to this sentence. Salvation cannot be bought by the currency of obedience. It is purchased by the blood of the Son of God. 
And so for me, this book was born out of a, a realization that I think I was trying to buy it through my obedience and feeling like I was doing maybe a pretty good job because I had the checklist all checked off. And yet you see in the Lord's response to the Pharisees, you see Alma talking to his son, you see all these examples where he's going, humility, it's humility. It's your brokenness before me. You're admitting that you need me, which the Pharisees never did, instead of the checklist. I don't know. <laughs> well, I think you've um, struck a wonderful balance there that's not easy to do um, because you didn't sell out obedience. To t- I, I know. <laughs> so, And you really were clear on the end of that segment that this is not about selling out obedience. Exactly to just get back to God because of grace and sort of eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we have grace. Yep. Um, This is still, you know, but you took us to kind of a higher, holier way, and I think Elder Uchtdorf's really powerful talk um, is the doctrinal foundation for what you just shared with us. And, And for some personalities, it's harder to do that because some personalities really enjoy I don't mean that in a negative way. They love to just say what's required. Yeah. And I want the checklists and that's just works better for my personalities. And yeah. some personalities, you know, what you shared and you have to live with the ambiguity a little bit that I don't for sure know what this means. <laughs> I mean, um, <clears throat> I just have to then do the best I can not be tired, and leave everything with the grace of God. And it's not like, and for everybody it's different. I don't believe it's like I do 90%, God does 10%. I don't think there's this sort of 100% that's required and God makes up some of it we make. We just do the best we can based on our unique journey and continually trying to grow and God through his grace of the Savior, makes up the difference. Yeah. I think one of the scriptures that meant the most to me as I began to grapple, because I had all the same questions you're bringing up, it it was an old paradigm that felt so safe. If I just check the boxes, I'm good. Like, just tell me what to do and I'll do it. And suddenly I'm reading these stories that are saying he values humility more than... But but I think the thing that, that really helped me, because... As I began to say, wait a second, can I move past performance-based religion and move to a state of grace? I think the biggest thing that happens when we're stuck in that performance-based paradigm is we feel like we're never, we'll never be enough. Yeah. Because when when could you ever do enough? Even if you have a huge checklist. Let's say you're the ward superhero and you do have a huge checklist, but there's always more you could do. And so I think we battle inadequacy. I mean, I hear from women all over the church, that that message of I'm not enough, I'm not enough, I don't feel like I'm enough. I sometimes wonder if it's because we're measuring ourselves against, we're, we're picturing the Lord up there with a checklist, looking at us, measuring our performance, because that's how we think we earn his favor. And we're never going to be enough if we're doing it that way. If we If we see it as a gift of grace that we don't have to earn, then it starts to heal that not enoughness. It at least has done that for me. Once I realized, wait a second, I don't have to stay on this mouse's wheel to earn his love. I can have it just as I am. That's what the gift of grace is. That's what he offered to all those quote unquote sinners we were talking about. The woman who 
who rubbed his feet with her hair. And Simon the Pharisee was like, why are you letting her touch you? She's a sinful woman. And yet Christ just attracted them because he offered this free gift. They didn't have to earn it through their performance. Something shifted in me when, sorry, I'm going to get emotional. Um, when I started to realize that this gift that he offered us is maybe so much bigger than my mind had ever comprehended, I think I gave words to the atonement and I talked about grace, but I lived as if I had to earn it. Does that make sense? It does. Um, and, and during the quarantine, I stepped off the mouse's wheel and I went, wait a second, like, I'm not sure I'm supposed to get back on that. It doesn't mean, like you said, it doesn't mean I'm saying I don't have to obey anymore. That's not what I'm saying. But the trying to earn it through my obedience, that was the mouse's wheel I stepped off of thinking, I can't see evidence of scripture that that's what he wants. He just wants my heart. He just wants my humility. And then he can be my enough instead of me trying to be enough on my own. I don't know. That was big for me. That was really big for me. Um, I made a list too. Let's try it. Let's try some of this. And, and I want to see what you think. Um, when we are in a paradigm of performance-based religion, kind of like a, a Pharisee where we're just like, okay, I've got to keep all the little rules. Um, yes, we'll end up feeling like we're not enough. Like we can never work hard enough, never be good enough. We can feel insecure. We can feel unworthy if we're just measuring it by our performance. But then also we haven't even talked about the exhaustion, the burnout, the overwhelm of, I, I had a friend once, oh, I love her so much. She had been going to the temple once a week and one of her leaders stood up and encouraged the whole um, congregation to double their temple efforts. I know. And so she came to me and she went, well, she had just been given a new checklist in her mind. Well, I guess I got to go twice a week now. And I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Is that how this is supposed to work? Like everything that, <laughs> that we're, oh, we got to put this on our plate. We got to put this on our plate. And I got to make sure I'm getting my family history. And I have to make, I, I asked the question in this book, is that really what it's supposed to look like? Here's all the things we're supposed to do. We're supposed to shove them all on our plate and get them all done and try to work as hard as we can to make sure we're ministering and make sure we're in the scriptures every day and make sure we're perfect at this and perfect at that. Suddenly I realized, well, what I really did was just kind of let all the spinning plates fall. And then I took it to the Lord and said, do you want to help me with this? Because I think I've been putting the spinning plates in the air. What do you think about this? Which plates are important? And I'll tell you what, I began to get promptings and guidance on things that he was like, I never told you to spin that plate. You were doing that. Suddenly my day and my life shifted as I started to realize there were things I had given myself to do because I thought it needed to be on the mouse's wheel to earn it through my performance and suddenly he's like, I didn't tell you to do that. I didn't prompt you to do that. You gave that to yourself. And it shifted everything for me. I went, oh, wait a second. I, I just took this big, deep breath. Like, like, that's a whole different way to view the, the religious life. And maybe not all the listeners have lived it like that as I have. 
maybe they haven't been on the mouse's wheel. Maybe many of you listening are thinking, why were you doing that in the first place? But that's where I had found myself in my 30s, trying to live it up, live up to it the best I could. And suddenly to have the Lord say, kind of prompt me and say, you know what? Give it to me. Give the whole list to me. I'll not only show you what's priority, but then if I put something on your plate, I can empower you with my grace to give you the energy and the strength you need. You were over here trying to do all of this stuff by by yourself just to earn all of, I don't know what I was trying to earn. Hand it over and then let me show you what's priority and then let me empower you with the strength and the energy and the time you need. And then suddenly I didn't feel, it didn't feel the same. It just didn't feel the frantic, the burnout, the overwhelm. It just started to dissipate in a way that that just blew my mind. JC, that was a terrific segment. <laughs> what well, was honest? It was terrific. Um, I love a couple things you said, and they might be different for other listeners that picked up nuggets that are helpful to them. But I love that you recognize God didn't put all these things, <laughs> <laughs> and. And he sort of said to you, I, I didn't really want you to be doing that. And yep. You just kind of started doing that. And so I love the relationship you have with God and asking God, what do you want me to do and not do? Yeah. And um, I love that. Um, I love, I'd love you to talk. I thought of um, a book that Elder Oaks wrote a long time ago that I read maybe 30 years ago, Pure in Heart. Mm. And he talked about sort of rank order of things, why we do good things. And um, the second to the top was because we want to get in the celestial kingdom, which he said, that's a good reason to do good things. <laughs> but then he went one step further. He says, just because we love God, yeah. the pure love of Christ. There's no inherent contract in that. It's yeah. just, we're not looking for anything for us. We've gotten to this point. We want to do good things just because we love God. Yeah, And I think you touched on that, but you may do this, but I, I, you asked, you know, where did I get in all these mouse wheels? Did that <laughs> come from me? But I'd love you to talk about sometimes our culture. And I think sometimes we hear stories of super women, and maybe yeah. this happens for men in conference or in church. And we sort of we sort of then create expectations yes. for ourselves because the way we talk about mm -hmm. super women or superheroes or um and so we we sort of culturally create this expectation for women. Um, that maybe is, as you're pointing out, not really what God wants us to do. Yeah. So you can go anywhere yeah. you want at this point. Oh, I love that. Do you know what? I love that you brought up that idea because President Uchtdorf or Elder Uchtdorf said the same thing in Gift of Grace, that if we take away the trying to earn it work mentality, then we obey just out of love, out of love and gratitude. So I, I second that. But, you know, I, I have this feeling that I think a lot of the reason we end up on the mouse's wheel is because our culture, from the day we're born, we're taught that performance is how you are successful. Even as a little child, you're like, get A's in school and you'll get a gold star. Be the star of the basketball team and you'll get praise. Like we are taught, even in work, perform well and you'll get rewarded. Even in parenting, we do that. You perform well and you won't be grounded. Right? I mean, it could it could apply in so many ways. And, and I'm not saying that that system is, is terrible, but wait a second. If we look at the scriptures, that is not the system of the gospel. But because our culture is that way, I think it somehow slides into our religious life. 
the messages we're getting at school or at work or wherever, that performance is the measure of your worth. Suddenly it comes into the gospel because it it feels like it makes sense. Partly it feels like it makes sense because it's like, well, if I do all these good things, then God will love me. But again, look at how Jesus interacted with people. If that's the truth of how it works, he should have gone straight to the synagogue, been best friends with all the Pharisees. They should have been his favorite because they were doing everything plus more. But why weren't they his favorite? He brought a gospel of grace and a gospel of mercy and said over and over, you do not have to earn it through your performance. That's self-salvation. That's self-salvation. And that's, I think, what got him so riled about the Pharisees is because they didn't need a savior. They, they had the system in place. And that's where I think we drift. Oh boy, as women, but I think all of us, women, we just have so much on our plate of raising kids and doing all the things. And boy, I was in, in the depths of that. But the message that's, that we just tell ourselves sometimes is that I have to perform to have worth. It, it baffles our minds that he could love us in our brokenness, I think. Maybe we had parents that didn't do that. Maybe we were leaders, coaches, people in our lives that when we didn't perform or live up to expectations, they, we got the silent treatment or we got rejection or we got abandoned. Or, and so it's been reinforced in our minds that I can only be loved if I perform. This could go deep for some of us, maybe not all of us, but boy, this message is, is in our culture. And so, of course, we would naturally bring it into the church culture and, and believe that God's the same way as that person. I have to earn his love. He couldn't love me in my brokenness. Look what I've done. Look what, even if it's just something as simple as yelling at your kids, or <laughs> I, I have all kinds of stories like that where I was a mess. Motherhood brought out the worst in me. How can he love me when look at what I just did or look at that moment? where I was just, oh, it's humiliating. How could he love me? This is almost an upside down way of looking at it. And so it is kind of hard to wrap our brains around the fact that he's coming and offering grace right where we are, no matter how broken we are, no matter how what we've done, no matter our past. That's the beauty of the gospel. In fact, the gospel means good news. And to me, if the gospel is you have to earn it, and work as hard as you can. And maybe if you keep all the rules really, really well, maybe you'll get the celestial kingdom. That's not good news. That's not even kind of good news. But the news that you you don't have to perform, that you don't have to, to be anything, that he is just offering that grace right where we are to lift us and change us and empower us. To me, that was just this overwhelming release of a burden that I had carried for many years. It's a really good segment. JC, I, I wrote down a phrase you said, he couldn't love me in my brokenness. And, mm. and I sort of connected some dots, if I can articulate, that it, that way of thinking that you concluded that you're now debunking is partly an outgrowth. And I think you said this of the checklist mentality, that yeah. since um, his love is earned and it's earned through the checklist that then if you fall down on the checklist, which we all do, oh. then you falsely conclude he can't love me because oh, I've yeah. got this paradigm built in my mind that breaks down if I don't do everything. But it, the paradigm you're suggesting to us, which I think is the doctrine of Christ, relieves that. And I think it actually leads to more, even though we're neither of us are trying to 
um, sort of invite people for more obedience and more goodness, <laughs> I think it may lead to that mm-hmm. because we feel less shame and more hope and just the grace empowers us to want to be better in a holier, higher way than just the, sort of the checklist. Yeah. You know, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, this is a duty thing versus the things you're talking about. So I love that. I, I, I would say, amen. for me, I think the greatest shift I've felt in beginning to move in a new direction with this is exactly what you said. When we believe he's measuring our performance to base his love on that, we need him, but we won't go grow close to him. We'll shy away from him. If we think he's judging us and looking down his nose at all the things we've done, we will run from the very person who can heal all of that. But, but if we don't, and again, I had to get deep into the scriptures and I, I do a lot more with this in the manuscript, in the book, but I had to get deep into the strip, scriptures to really convince my psyche. It just, it's the greatest news, but it's hard to believe that he can love. Let's say I just lost it and screamed at my kids. I'm not saying I ever did that. <laughs> I did it all the time, <laughs> but there's so much shame in that moment. Like you said. I, I want to shield that from him. I, I want to hide it from him. I don't want him to, I, I tell myself, well, I better get my acting gear and clean all that up. And then I can go to Christ. Then I can, but boy, I'm not going to him in this mess that I'm in right now because that's embarrassing and it's humiliating and he's not going to accept me. And, and yet we just went through stories where every single outcast, leper, sinner, in in that he ever encountered, he embraced with open arms. So why do we tell ourselves? We have a whole book of New Testament showing his love and his compassion, but yet we tell ourselves, no, no, he can't love me in my current. He can't. Why would he? And, and maybe that's reinforced by people in our lives that show us that reject us in that state and show us and shame us or, and so the message has been reinforced. And so of course, in our minds, we're like, you know, that's not how it works. Can I read you a quote? Please. This is from um, Elder Christofferson. I just love this. He, and I, uh, it was a talk be at peace in December, 2015. He said, some years ago, I heard a radio interview from Bishop Desmond Tutu. Um, the Anglican Archbishop in South Africa. And he said, during the interview, the host asked a perceptive inspired question of Bishop Tutu. He said, have you found that your relationship to God has changed as you've grown older? And Bishop Tutu paused and then said, yes, I'm learning to shut up more in the presence of God. He says he recalled when he prayed in earlier years, he did so with a kind of list of requests and solicitudes. He would approach heaven with a kind of shopping list But he said, now, he said, I think I'm just trying to grow in just being there. Like when you sit in front of a fire in winter, you are just there in front of the fire and you don't have to be smart or anything. The fire warms you. And then Elder Christofferson says this, and I think it's so powerful. He says, I think that is a lovely metaphor. Just sit with the Lord and let him warm you like a fire in winter. You don't have to be perfect or the greatest person who ever graced the earth or the best of anything to be with him. Let that moment be one of rest and refreshing and reassurance and renewal. And that for me was the impetus to keep writing and to keep 
working until I could get this in print because as long as we're in a performance-based mentality, we won't feel comfortable just sitting with him, being with him, letting him renew us and refresh us and, and lift us because we'll be so worried about all the ways we're not performing. The natural man is real. None of us can go a day without some reminder of that. And so moving away from that performance-based mindset that I had to earn it through my performance to just sit with him. And like Elder Christofferson said, you don't have to be perfect. You don't have to be the best at anything. You, you can be as broken as all the people that we see in the New Testament that he just enveloped and wrapped in his arms and embraced and said, I know, let me empower you. Let me change you. You never was supposed to do it by yourself. So that, that's revolutionized my life. It really has. It's really good stuff, JC. I'm trying to. It's think really it. needed stuff right now. Um, life's really hard. Yeah. And um, our culture can add to that, and self-imposed expectations are part of that. And I do look at the life of Christ and what that means also for our day and what He's inviting us to do. I think of everything you're teaching us and sharing with us, and I think of how it applies if for those listeners that are parents, mm -hmm. because the principles apply. I think we're talking, you're talking about God feels about us, and yeah. I think that's some of the same things if you were talking to parents, especially those that you have kids at home, the kind of culture you can create in your home with mm -hmm. the principles JC sharing with this, I think helps your kids. I don't think it helps them to be less performers. <laughs> I think it may help them to just feel at peace with who they are and your love for them to help them do better in life um, and be maybe sustained in a longer way because of the principles that are more long-term mm -hmm. that you're sharing versus maybe short-term results focused. Um, so I thought about that. I, I also wrote down those of you that are in these really high demanding callings. I wrote three down. <laughs> <laughs> Release Society President, Elders Corn President, and Bishop. Yeah, And I, whenever I hear someone called into those callings and I happen to visit with them or see them, my first reaction is to take pressure off them because there's yeah. no way they can do all that is, at, all that is sort mm -hmm. of suggested they do. They have stewardship responsibility for hundreds of people, especially with elders corn being combined. And I just think they have to be at peace that they're not going to reach everybody and yep. change everybody's life, but they can maybe for three or five people be the person that makes incredible difference in their life and just know that God's with you and his grace will reach the ones you need to reach. And that contrasts with a calling I had once, JC, which <laughs> I was in charge every night of locking up the building. It was called the PFR. <laughs> yep. And I still don't know what that stands for, um, but it was the only calling I've ever had where I knew I was done. <laughs> there was no dissidence. It was a checklist because there were just locks. Yep. Simple. And there were windows and listeners. I never felt the spirit over the church. In fact, my wife knows I'm kind of a scaredy pants when it's dark. <laughs> and she knows I went over there alone in the building. I took our little dog with us and I figured our dog would bark. And that's a little bit of a tangent. Um, but I just love what you're teaching us. And I think of some of the podcasts also where um, there's an OCD that's sort of the OCD of certainty mm -hmm. that you need to have certainty. And some of that can bleed into... You need to be clean spiritually and you need to be clean by washing your hands. And some of the exposure rethoughts therapy you do is to learn to live with the dissidence of not mm. knowing if you're perfectly 
um, scrupulosity can get in there if yeah. you're not perfectly. So you need reassurance all the time, or you're, the reassurance or the compulsion is walking, washing your hands. So for some personalities, yeah. what you're suggesting to do is hard. Oh, incredibly Because hard. you want the reassurance to know you're okay with God. But yeah. I think it's, it's you know, so you have to live with the dissidence yeah. that you're, you're, that the doctrine supports what you're saying is the grace allows for whatever gap is that you're sensing dissonance with to be at peace and just, I'm doing the best I can. I need to be at peace with who I, who I am today. Um and not I've just look had, at your older self and say, I'll be yeah. at peace when I'm there. Yeah. But be at peace where you are, even if it's not where you hope to be sometime down the road. I think one of my struggles, I so I had seven children in eight years. And, and the <laughs> Can oldest we just was stop eight. listeners? <laughs> JC told me that and I wrote it down in big seven children I, in eight years. And I think each of those is a different pregnancy. <laughs> Is that right? No, no twins. Yeah, no, no twins. twins. I, that was not my plan, Richard. I I was not the girl grabbing every baby at church, and <laughs> I, I that was not my plan. Now I can tell you a hundred, more than a hundred reasons I would do it again in a second. Now that I've done it and see how good it was, for, how much fun it was. It wasn't always fun, but it was perfect for us. But at the time when I had my oldest or youngest, I had a second grader a kindergartner and five preschoolers. Oh my gosh. It was, it was. It, and so when you say something like, well, we were just, you know, we do our best. And at that, at that time, it was the messiest. <laughs> I, I'm not here to say I'm a patient person. It, it was, it was survival of the fittest. It was um, one minute at a time, not just one day at a time. But if I had to believe in that season, <laughs> that I had to kind of hold it all together and I couldn't just invite the Lord into the mess and just right when I was about to kill that kid, let him step into that. If I felt like I had to kind of get my act together and then I could go to him for strength, I would have never gone to him because I never had my act together because it was just, it, it was such a learning experience, but it brought me out. Like you said, that dissonance, I kind of got to a place where I started to realize, so here's what happened. I was starting to actually resent all these children because I could never get quiet time in the scriptures. And I knew I needed it to be rejuvenated. But I mean, there was a baby or a kid or someone from the minute I woke up to the, it, there was never any quiet time. I'm like, how am I supposed to get renewed and filled? And suddenly as I was praying about it, it was that idea of bring me into the mess. You think that I can only be with you in the whitewashed the kids are all asleep. The house is clean. Now you can sit down with me and get revelation. That was never happening. And so suddenly he was like, you know, I can be there when you're doing the dishes. I can be there when you're walking through Walmart. I can be there when that toddler is having a complete meltdown because that's when you need me more. I needed him a thousand times more in those messy moments than I did when everything was whitewashed and the kids were asleep. And then I could have my little spiritual moment, not not that those are bad. Those were huge for me, but they were so rare that I had to shift my mentality to making him my partner. Even when things were super, I might've yelled at the kids. And then it was like, Hey, help me get my act together. We, I don't know if I'm You're explaining making, this well, that's Great, but it was just a shift from thinking I had to have my act together to be worthy of sitting at his feet. Instead, it was me at my worst saying, Lord, just get me through the next minute so I do not kill this two-year-old. 
or three-year-old or whatever. And I did it with teenagers, same thing, right? It, it was letting him come into the mess and not feeling like I had to earn, earn it, but just making him my partner and, and ex- accessing that grace in the messiest moments when I needed it the most. I don't know. You know, listeners, we've done so many of these podcasts, but I'm just struck by um, the things I'm hearing for the first time and um, and your vocabulary to communicate your thoughts, JC, is just terrific. But I love that you just are vulnerable about your brokenness and the mm. messiness. And um, I think some can relate to seven, no one, maybe not too many can relate <laughs> to seven kids in eight years. But when you took us to Walmart. Yep. And yep. you took us to, um, you know, how many were in preschool and how many were still at home. And <laughs> and then you said, I learned that God's with me at Walmart. Yeah. And he's with me when things, I've probably got a crying kid. Um, that's just beautiful. Yeah. Well, Because it just teaches a principle that I think the temple is so, I think I love the temple, mm-hmm. but it's such a, it's not a place like Walmart. No. It's it's very different, and we often talk about the personal revelation we receive in the temple, mm-hmm. and I think that's good, but sometimes it may communicate a feeling we're not going to see every pers- personal revelation, we're changing a diaper, right? or after we've just kind of lost it, or we're in the middle of Walmart. Exactly. And I think that, you know, and I wrote down as you were talking here, personal revelation is not earned, and it's not place-specific. Yeah. It's just there. Yeah. Because of grace and because of God's love for yeah. us. In fact, he probably would love to talk to you at Walmart <laughs> um, or when you're doing the dishes and in the yep. temple, because I think our heavenly parents want to talk to us a lot. Yeah. And I think sometimes we just don't feel they want to talk to us right now because we're not our personal best. Yeah. And it, and yeah. none of you, what you said is sin related, but I think you would say, you know, those, we're all working through sin, but I'm particularly thinking of the YSAs and my YSAs, because yeah. that's just a... A tougher time. There's more messing up. Oh, there's so. I would assume yeah, in, so much. in the YSA age than there is. I'm in the 60s, so <laughs> we could measure the aggregate mess, messing up per capita for 60 year olds <laughs> versus 20 year olds. My <laughs> guess is it's higher for 20 year olds. Yeah, and, the world's different for them. And so I don't, I don't want to make that joke of that too much, but I just think a false conclusion is well, God will sort of be with me once I'm sort of through my messing up and. Yeah. I've sort of gone through the stages of repentance that I can do on my own. And then I'm going to turn to God because then I'll finally be worthy of his love again. And and, yeah. and the personal revelation he wants to give me, he'll finally start talking to me. And yeah. I just think he talks to us. Um, and I listened to a podcast on Faith Matters just about, you know, most of the growth occurs not in the roses, but in the thorns. Mm. Um and failure is a stepping stone forward. So I think so much personal growth occurs, and God wants to be there during the thorns. Absolutely. And during the failures and during the difficult times. And so that could be at Walmart. <laughs> I'm not criticizing Walmart, but it's not a place we usually think of that God would <laughs> Maybe talk that to just us. means I had a lot of bad moments at Walmart, <laughs> and that's why. You know, it reminds me of the verse in John 15. When Christ is talking about, I'm the vine and you are the branches. And, and he says, abide in me and I in you. And, and unlike if you're cut off from that vine, 
There's no strength. There's no growth. He says, in fact, in verse, I think it's verse five. I don't have it open in front of me, but he says, not only can you do nothing without me. No, I've been, no, I'm going to read it because I'm saying it wrong. I know what it is. I know what I'm looking for. He says in verse five, without me, you can do nothing. Not do the best you can for as long as you can. And then, then when you, things get rough, maybe you can rely a little on my grace. He says, without me, you can do nothing. And that season taught me that to, to not just try to hold it together for my 80% and not need him because I I'm pretty strong and I've got this. And then maybe for the 20% really bad moments, maybe I'll try to draw on some grace because yeah, today's bad, but I'll get back to my normal self tomorrow. No, it taught me without me, you can do nothing. Don't, don't try to compartmentalize it. Bring me into all of it. And then as my grace fills you and as my strength and my energy and my wisdom and my patience begins to fill you through the power of the spirit, you're going to have what you need in those moments. But when you go off solo and try to earn it on the mouse's wheel or whatever, it's just like we said, going to end up in failure, exhaustion, unworthiness, feelings of unworthiness, of inadequacy. Anytime we're cut off from him, those are the results. And so as we can maybe just feel like we can come to him in our brokenness, like I said, I battled depression in those years as well. I just kind of throwing that out there, but it was, it was a rough go to have the kids and depression. But again, it taught me a kind of desperation and need for a savior because I wasn't holding it together. Not even a little bit. There was no do your best. There was get through the next five minutes. And so it taught me, a. um, it's like president Nelson says, and please forgive me listeners. I don't know what talk this is, but he said to rely on the Lord, like a drowning man gasping for air. Do you remember that talk? It's sometime in the last few years. I can't even remember which one it is, but to reach for him, like a drowning man is reaching to be saved. Like that kind of desperation. Once I began to realize the kind of empowerment that could come when I got off the mouse's wheel and just started to rely on him instead, it felt like that. Like just, Oh, I want more of this. I like this. This does not feel heavy. This feels so different to have that feeling coming from him instead of my own strength. I'm rambling a little, but you're not rambling. <laughs> Thanks for your courage to be open about depression. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and th- that's not a spiritual weakness as we know, but it's the reality that many people walk and yeah. perhaps more when you've got all those kids and just, um, so thanks for being open about that. And I, you, you know, I read this quote a lot, the wounded healer, mm-hmm. um, a minister's service will not be effective unless he or she can, well, I don't have the quote in front of me. <laughs> We're all doing that today. Um, can, you know, lead out of the deserts because they've been there. It's sort of this idea, this isn't theoretical for you. Yeah. This isn't academic. is isn't just based on scriptures. It's based on your own personal journey. Yeah. And so your willingness to write, to start a blog, a YouTube channel, be on this platform is a gift to others. And it gives, and part of a reason I say that listeners is if you're kind of the wounded person right now in a really difficult desert, um, you, you can be, and maybe you can do it concurrently with being in the desert is you can be a wounded healer. You can help others. Oh, for sure. But being honest and vulnerable and real is part of the formula to do that. For sure. What you're doing. More thoughts that come to your mind, JC? Um, I'm trying to decide how much of a tangent because we're we're probably getting oh, close on time. Love, keep talking. <laughs> I uh, I will just share this one thing, and it doesn't really have a ton to um, 
to do with what we're talking about. Well, I, that season of depression, um, has actually turned into, I, I'm trying to decide how much to, I go for it. I fell on my face and told the Lord, I can't be a mother. I can't, I can't do this. I, I am, I'm drowning just like we were talking about. And my story is he led that to some changes in the way I ate. Is that sound so crazy? I love that. But I was a huge sugar addict, emotional eater, all of that. And I did not know there was a link to depression. And that is where he began the healing. But I have now morphed into, that's what's on my podcast and my YouTube channel. And is I, in case anyone um, resonates with that, I do a lot of face, faith-based work in the wellness space. Um, sugar addiction, emotional eating, uh, disordered eating, um, in bringing the Lord into that mess, because my story, when I changed my eating, the depression was gone and has been gone for 15 years. And that's what led me into not saying that that's always the cause. I'm not saying there's a lot of contributing factors. But for me, the Lord uh, led me to overcome some addiction and some dysfunctional habits that really uh, transformed my life. And so I'm at the point right now where those experiences, all of this, what we've talked about in the book, but also what I talk about on my platform, on my website, he's just so much bigger sometimes than I think we even realize. And he can heal so much deeper than maybe we even think to ask. I had a lady the other day I was talking to, and we were talking about how she's really struggling with um, some food addiction and things like that. And she said, well, does he even care about that? Does he like, it kind of made her uncomfortable. She's like, Does, can I even pray about that? And that's what my message would be today. Wherever we are, whatever we're struggling with, sorry, excuse me. No matter what it is, he's, he is the healer of all of those things and can work miracles in our lives. But we just, we run from him out of shame or embarrassment, or we try to fix it ourselves, or we just sometimes um, have to get to the point of such brokenness that we'll fall at his feet and say, I have nothing else but you now. I have tried to fix it by myself so many times that that I'm I wish I hadn't been so broken that I did that, but I did. I was like, I'm done. I have nothing. I have to be a mom. I have to be um functional. And I wasn't. And he um took me on a journey, and that's what I talk about a lot in. In, in a lot of those resources you were talking about. So I just threw that out there. It had nothing to do with what we were talking about. But in the in the spirit of being vulnerable, that's the other kind of work that I do is, is bringing Christ into the wellness space because so many of us struggle there too. So I love that. And listeners, please go to jcwhiteman.com and um, if those resources um, help or it might be helpful to you. And I love that... Um, God kind of helped you realize things you needed to change within yourself. And and perhaps some of that emotional eating or some of those bad habits were just yeah. were coping mechanisms to deal with the mouse wheel you were on and <laughs> sort of escaping the pressure. A hundred percent they were. You are exactly so right. I've recognized that some of that creeps into our lives when we're just dealing with difficult stuff. So sort of unpack that and unwind that. Yeah. Often you need a professional person to do that, but mm-hmm. I love the way the inspiration came from Heavenly Father yep. 
and sort of opened the door for you, but you had to do kind of some of your work on your own. Absolutely. Um, and so I offer I, a lot of resources in that, in that lane so, for yeah. where help can be found. More things you'd like to share. <laughs> I, I have absolutely um, loved this discussion. Do you know what's funny about this? This is not because you invite us to write an outline, don't you? Yes, and, and you have an outline, and I do. And I, but I told the Lord, I told the Lord before, I was like, "You take this over wherever this needs to go. I don't need to follow the outline. I just kind of throw, threw down some ideas, and we've gone in a different direction a little bit. But I, um, I appreciate the chance to share my heart because you have a gift. Uh, you you dug a little deeper. And not that the outline that I have is bad. We could have talked about some of those things, but I'm thankful because really, um, yeah, you touched on my deep, deepest feelings. And I appreciate the chance to, to have that. I, now that I'm looking at it, that's what I would have rather talked about anyway. So I appreciate that chance. Well, JC, I'm moved by the things you shared and, uh, you know, we say a prayer before these podcasts and just hope that the things that either of us say, especially my guest who's coming with their lived experience, will be helpful for you. And um, I've learned some things here that have been helpful for me. Oh, good. And um, so please check out JC's book. It's called Art You Tired? <laughs> Embracing the Lord's Call to Enter His Rest. Tell our listeners, they can't see this photo here, but if they go to the link I share, <laughs> I... tell... Tell our listeners about this photo. We went through multiple copies of the cover because I wanted a certain feel to the cover. And she and my great graphic designer came up with some cool, cool designs, but it wasn't what I wanted. I wanted an exhausted person on the cover because that's the feel. I'm just, and there is, that's how we, we found one, didn't we? <laughs> and this, this exhausted person is just sort of prone looking straight up, like arms done. out. Just done. Looks just exhausted. And when she sent me that cover, I was ecstatic. I thought, that's it. That's why Christ came to offer us rest. He came to offer us healing. And we're so tired and we're so done and we're so worn out, even trying to live our religion, even trying to live our religion. And I don't think that's what he wants for his disciples. And um, I think we both want our religion to work with more for more people. I think mm -hmm. JC and I believe you, you taught it, that the healing doctrine of Christ that's unique through the restoration of the prophet Joseph Smith, plan of salvation, can heal and bring hope, but it's sometimes the culture yes, and the, ex the potential exhausting feelings of the culture that you've talked about cause some people to say, I just, I can't do this anymore. Yeah. Yep. It, I, I fundamentally have a testimony <laughs> of our doctrine, but I just, the culture just doesn't match who I am and how I feel. And I, and this is another podcast you know, I get, I'm speaking for some of you and how I felt at times I get anxious to come to church. It's, it's sort of the, the reality of who, I'm not who I, who I want to be at this point in my life or my life's really messy and I go to church and it feels like everybody else is sort of not messy. And, um, that is painful for me and I have anxiety and I've got kids that aren't yeah. doing all the milestones that perhaps yep. other families do. And so, church can become a difficult spot. Just maybe some thoughts on that subject. We've got a little more time. I'd okay. love to okay. have you share some um, thoughts about that. I'm trying to decide how, <laughs> how authentic I, I can be. I, uh, mm, I have a few kids that are in that space 
um, and, and are struggling with the culture um, and are stepping away at, at various seasons of their life and making different choices. And we have had a lot of family conversations lately, a lot of family conversations, because I think I, I, especially in their teenage years and as we raise them in a very predominantly LDS community, I think I had performance expectations for my kids because I think a lot of us do. This is the checklist. This is what you're going to do with your life. And this is how it's supposed to look. And, and, and we're having conversations on, because my kids are now 22 to 31. So they're, and four are married, three are not. Um, and still in that dating space, space, which is not very easy right now, but we're having conversations about, is this okay, mom? What about this choice? And what would this look like? And, and redefining not the doctrine at all. Like you've said, we're, we're as a family just feel so strongly about the doctrine of Jesus Christ, but we're starting to have our eyes open through these adult kids to cultural things that I think could shift without the doctrine changing at all. Let me give you an example of it that happened the other day. Um, and it isn't a kid thing. It isn't a, a young adult thing at all. This is just an example of a culture that sometimes you sit back and go, wait a second, what? My husband and I went to state conference and it's just the two of us now. So we went to state conference and he wore a blue shirt. It, he just, he, he didn't think about it. He just put on a blue shirt. And he caught several comments from people. And one man even leaned over and he goes, man, you're pretty brave to wear a blue. I wish I was that brave. And we looked at, and he, he looked at me and told me, and then he looked around and he goes, I think I'm the only one in here wearing a blue shirt. Wow. And we went home and talked about it. And it's not the blue shirt issue. We, we went home and looked in the handbook. The handbook says nothing about wearing a white shirt to church. Now, if you're listening from another state or another country, this may not be, this is maybe a Utah thing because we live in Utah, but just a simple cultural thing like that, where he kind of got razzed a little for wearing a blue shirt, where there's nothing in the handbook about even blessing the sacrament. There's nothing that says that that has to be a thing. We sometimes wrap our culture around some of these rules. And we, so we were talking about those kinds of things with our kids. What is culture and what is doctrine? And maybe we need to have some more conversations to kind of peel away some of those layers <laughs> so that then if somebody walks into church and they're not only not in a blue shirt, they're in blue jeans or they're in a woman, heaven forbid, not wearing a dress or when we're so tight in this cultural mindset, then we start to marginalize and reject and, and start pointing fingers kind of like that happened to my husband. It was just a blue shirt. What if he had been someone investigating, someone wandering in? And I just think there's room to embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ, but question some of the cultural elements that maybe have snuck in. I think the Lord would be pleased to have us question what is true doctrine and what is just culture so that we can have a culture that is more welcoming. Um, not that we aren't welcoming. I want to be so careful with this. I think we are, but I just have seen it in myself. Oh, that person smells like smoke or that person. We're, Christ set the perfect example, like we were just talking about and, and opened 
He, he, what would he do if he came into our churches? If there were piercings or tattoos or blue hair or jeans, or what would he have done based on everything we've talked about this hour? And how am I responding? Is it based on old cultural paradigms, old performance-based paradigms about the rules that I think you need to keep to be a good LDS member? And so I, I look down my nose at somebody, I don't know, I'm... These are all the questions we are throwing around in our household right now. I'm past the teenage stage. And so now I have these young adults throwing out really hard questions. And it's not enough to just say, oh, just read your scriptures. Just say your prayers. These are hard questions that deserve real answers. And we're really starting to grapple with some things that they'll say stuff to me. And I'll say, you know what? That's really fair. That question is fair. What do you think? And at least begin to open it without feeling like they're doing something wrong to begin to ask questions in a safe place where, where we can dialogue about some of these things. I don't know. I'd love to hear your experience. I'm glad we added this segment on. Um, <laughs> the first thought is I think it's terrific. Your family culture allows these kind of discussions. We didn't, we didn't always. We're getting there. It's required it of us, but we didn't always. And I think that is a good thing. And I think if something I wish I'd done better, because our kids are the same age as your kids, roughly, there's one less, Yeah, <laughs> um, but they came pretty quick, but not quite as quick as yours, um, is just to have these kind of, I think we did a pretty good job, but I wish I'd done more of this Yeah, and sort of taught some some framework to, to separate doctrine and culture and have conversations around yeah. culture and what we can do. I think we did okay, but I uh, these kind of discussions... I wish more of these discussions were happening yeah. at church. And so, you know, we were talking about the very things. I, um, there's a podcast I listened to on Faith Matters from Jeff Strong, who's a recently returned mission president. And he had some really interesting things to say that kind of dovetail into what you're saying. But one of the things he talked about is the tradition of our fathers, mm. which is a phrase from the scriptures. And I think he was using it in the context of what is culture that's passed down. And some of that traditions of our fathers is terrific. Yeah. But some of it is maybe culture that, you know, where we are right now and the needs of the church right now doesn't match. Absolutely. And so I'm not selling out our fathers or our grandfathers or grandmothers or Mm-mm. all the good that's been done. But I think it's okay to say, you know, this is, you know, part of the the ongoing restoration. Take your vitamins, <laughs> as President Nelson says, you know. And so um, I just think we have to... We're, I think the principles here that we talk a lot, a lot about is we're called, and you've been teaching it with Christ, the whole podcast is we're called to gather, not sift. Oh, I love that. And so there's a little sifting and jest that occurred that. with your husband in a blue shirt. It wasn't enough to cause him <laughs> to lose his testimony no, no. and leave the church. And Raz is the word you use, which I think yeah. is an appropriate word. And yeah. he smiled. And But it it's just... It's a little bit of sifting, and it's a little bit of policing, and it's a little bit of boundary, and it and it reinforces that culture that I think, you know, there's nothing in the handbook about that. And certainly, you know, we had a cool experience in our ward. I, I don't usually share many experiences in our ward, but our organist, um, terrific, faithful member, wears a black shirt um, exactly. on the organ. He doesn't wear a tie, and he's been working with a couple of the young men in our ward to, to become organists. And so um, one Sunday, this young man was doing the organ and he took his place passing the sacrament with this same black shirt and yeah. a tie. Yeah. And our ward culture didn't think twice. I don't know. I didn't pull everybody, but I think everybody <laughs> was just, you know, 
we're there to protect the sacrament, not yes. to sort of police um, the people passing the sacrament. So I thought that was great. And I also wrote down as I think Jesus, as you taught, would go out in the foyer <laughs> exactly. and pass the sacrament. And we we leave the building to pass the sacrament to people that can't come to church. So let's do every that's just a principle. We're called to be gatherers. Yeah. We're not called to be Pharisees and sort of put rules in place to make it harder for people to feel our love. Exactly. I think the temple, there's a narrowing of the gate there with a belief and behavior hurdle. But culturally, we shouldn't bring that back into the culture of our families or our congregations, as you've given many examples. So, I think the hardest part about it is you look at the Pharise- Pharisees' spiritual life, the religious world they'd created. It had come from Jehovah. Like the law of Moses had come from Jehovah. True. So they weren't creating some something out of their own head. They were basing it on the law that had been revealed from God. They had just added some layers on their own. <laughs> and I think it's fair for us to ask those same questions. I think it's a little bit presumptuous to think that even if there were the restored church, that doesn't mean we don't have things to improve upon. And I mean, it, it's pretty elitist to feel like there's nothing that we, we could possibly do wrong. Of course, we have things that can shift and change to make us more of an example of how Christ interacted in his ministry. And so that's that's kind of what we're throwing around as a family. Again, if you want to wear a red sh- or a white shirt to s- church every Sunday, I, I'm not judging that either. But I just think we need to be careful with some of these, these um, like you said, the traditions of our fathers and not so much the shirt itself, but what it does to us in the way we treat others and the way we point our finger and the way we judge, even if we don't say it out loud, where we're looking at someone. And my daughters have said that to me. She, my, Oh, she has two piercings in her ear. Oh, that person has, you know, I, there are, let me think if I can count one, two, three, five, eight tattoos in my family right now. But I, I'm just learning to see it differently Everyone has their own journey. Everyone can find Christ on their own path. Instead of me pointing fingers, I'm learning to wrap my arms around wow. and listen. Listen, learn, and love, right? No, did I do it wrong? You listen, did it learn, right. and love. You did it right. It took okay. me a long time, even though I once we developed the acronym to say it. <laughs> I, I just love that closing segment. What a great closing segment. So, Listeners, I, Chasey and I hope this is helpful to you, that ideas will come into your mind that give you more peace in your life. We're not in the business of trying to get more anxiety in your life or feeling mm-hmm. like you need to be more. We're in the business of trying to bring the doctrine of Christ into your life to better love yourself, better love and support those around you, and better bring us together as the same human family and love and support. So, J.C. Whiteman, no H there, W-I-G-H-T-M-E-N. There is an H, but not after the W. Yeah, it's not like the color. <laughs> um, please check out this book, Aren't, Aren't You Tired? We'll link to J.C.'s website, and um, we'll sign off on another episode.